This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. We're posting a little late this week in order to cover the third and final presidential debate. Today we'll look at the media that have shaped the worldview of Trump supporters. It explains a lot about their thinking. Kai Wright has that story. He's host and producer of the podcast, The United States of Anxiety. And we're still feeling good about Bob Dylan being awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature last week. We'll talk about it and listen to some Bob Dylan songs with Greel Marcus. His book, Bob Dylan by Greel Marcus, Writings 1968 to 2010, is 481 pages long. First up, maybe you heard the news. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton met in Las Vegas on Wednesday night for the third and final debate. For comment, we turn to Joan Walsh. She's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. She's also a political analyst on MSNBC, and she wrote the book, What's the Matter with White People? Joan Walsh, welcome back. Thanks, John. Glad to be back. Well, we're recording this the morning after the debate. The headline everywhere this morning is, Trump says he might not accept the results if he loses. He went on the radio the morning after and issued what is supposed to be some kind of a clarification. He said, I'm being asked to waive the right to a recount or a legal challenge in the case of questionable results. He said that's what he wouldn't, he wouldn't agree to. What's your understanding of where we stand on this right now? I think we have no idea what he's going to do. I mean, I, I took that as, I took his clarification uh, it was it was kind of unsatisfying to me. Obviously, no one's telling him that he if he if he says to Chris Wallace, "Yeah, I'm going to accept the results," that means he can't challenge something if if there would be evidence of of voter fraud. That wasn't the question. That isn't what he's being asked to do. It's just it's bizarre that it's come to this though that we, that he's being asked this kind of routine question and he ha- he has to rattle rouse and he's been using it 
you know, with his with his uh, crowds, they're very excited that he's saying he won't accept the results. One of the things he said was, uh, "Sure, I'll respect the process." Quote: "If I win, <laughs> like, but not if you lose." Okay, if you win, it, it wasn't rigged, but if you lose, it was. In the debate, uh, he said that uh, Clinton, quote, should never have been allowed to run for the presidency based on what she did with emails and so many other things. And the morning after, he suggested that Hillary should resign from the race because Donna Brazile gave her uh, debate questions in one of the debates with uh, Bernie Sanders. What what do we understand about that today? And what do you make of these uh, suggestions of his? It's wishful thinking on his part. I mean, the Donna Brazil situation seems wrong on so many levels. What she has said is, first of all, she's advised both Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton's campaigns at various times. She did not ever have the question, so she could not provide the question. Some email, some, one of these WikiLeaks emails that seems to indicate that she did something like this, she says it was not from her. She's, she's you know, as other people have done, she's denying uh, that this is an email from her. So, you know, but I think it, the, the thing to me that proves that, that, you know, this is bogus is that e- even our friends in the mainstream media who love nothing more than to go into the WikiLeaks emails to make Hillary Clinton look bad, uh, they're dismissing this. You know, it, it's just not something Donna Brazil would do. People trust her. She's been in politics forever. She, she stays on the sidelines when she needs to, and she did that in the in the primary process. So, you know, again, it's just more crooked Hillary. You know, the crowd started chanting, lock her up, when he revisited that in his speech on Thursday. It's just really more building of a sense uh, of illegitimacy when she becomes president, which I believe she will become on January 20th. There were uh, a lot of substantive issues that the moderator Chris Wallace raised. One of them was abortion. Of course, the parties are really different on abortion and have been, you know, ever since Roe v. Wade in the mid-70s. People know pretty much what they think about the politics of abortion. Was there anything new at the third debate? Well, it was new that uh, people are happy, women are having abortions in, you know, in the ninth month and chil- oh, yes. children are being ripped from their wombs. None of that is true. There are restrictions on late-term abortions. Uh, but I think what was really new and what I saw a lot of joy uh, in the reproductive rights community was that she was incredibly thoughtful and straightforward and uh, moving in some ways in her defense of a woman's right to choose. She talked knowledgeably about all the laws that states are passing, which are designed, you know, designed to discourage abortion, designed to make it tough to get, designed to make it more expensive. Uh, You know, she really, this is just not an issue that Democrats have been forthright about um, at the presidential level. They've been good on the issue. They they vote the right way, but they've been uh, a little bit reluctant to uh, talk too loud about it. I mean, even Hillary Clinton herself, and you know, earlier in her career, used to talk mostly about making abortion safe, legal, and rare. And that was perceived by some feminists as, as kind of, again, a little bit of distancing, a little bit of discomfort with the fact that women get to make this choice for themselves. Uh, there was none of that left at the debate. There was no, there's been none of it the whole campaign. I mean, she's on record. She uh, you know, wants to 
overturn the Hyde Amendment, which prevents uh, Medicaid funds from being used that way. I mean, she's really become a champion on these issues, uh, and, and I think a lot of us appreciate it. Trump, during the third debate, denied ridiculing the women who have accused him of sexual assault, sexual harassment. He denied ridiculing them for being unattractive he, I did not say that, he repeated three times. First of all, this is just a, what a thing for presidential candidates to be debating. But what did you make of that, that part of the night? It was preposterous because we've had. I was at the I was at the rally last week in Greensboro where he where he did mock these women about she wouldn't be my first choice to you know molest uh, you know saying that you know making fun of someone's appearance on CNN you saw her last night I wouldn't go after that um, so that's one thing but you know if you want to go if you want to move slightly to higher ground John he did the exact same thing when she confronted him on. Uh, his his fondness for uh, nuclear proliferation. She said, "You you are on record in various interviews suggesting that we let Japan have nuclear weapons, Saudi Arabia." And again, he said, "I did not. I never said that." I mean, she was not able to splice in the quotes, but uh, you know, plenty of uh, TV shows have done it since. In fact, if I can interrupt, it was in an interview with Chris Wallace himself that she t- That's right. that Trump That's talked right. about this. That's right. So, you know, again, he he got this far. He didn't get caught, or he, if he got caught, it didn't matter. And he thinks he's still dealing with the Republican primary, but he's not. And, the, you know, the media has toughened up on him, and he's he's got to appeal beyond that, you know, 30-something percent of the country that apparently wants to go backwards, has, a, has an assortment of grievances, but he just can't. I think he is finally getting that he's likely to lose. There's reporting from inside the campaign that he's angry, that there's a gif, gif, whatever you say, you know, a little an internet uh, meme, go, not meme, it's just actually a picture of what happened at the end of the debate where he kind of angrily rips his uh, notes, uh, rips a page off of his notes and glares as Hillary is happily shaking hands with Chris Wallace. If you haven't seen it, go find it because it really shows the guy, he, he can say whatever he wants. The guy knows he lost. He blew it last night. On the foreign policy section of of the debate, uh, afterwards on MSNBC, one of their Republican commentators, for GOP strategist Steve Schmidt, said Trump in his comments on Mosul was, quote, like an old man in the park feeding squirrels, close <laughs> quote. That was pretty devastating. What did you think of the Mosul discussion? I think he doesn't really have any clue what's going on. And, you know, he's he's constantly telling us that he's smarter than the generals. Well, sometimes he says he'll listen to his generals. Then he says he's smarter about defeating ISIS than the generals. Uh, and, you know, all he's got in his toolkit is that he thinks that we shouldn't be announcing that we are, you know, attacking Mosul because we should sneak in and surprise them. I mean, does he think that, does he understand how warfare works? I mean, it, it's just, it, again, it's, it's cartoonish, it's childish, uh, uh, and, you know, it's good to see even Republicans calling it just that. I'll have to remember that, an old man feeding on a park bench feeding squirrels. It's very, very colorful. <laughs> you know, the bottom line here is a lot of people don't like Hillary Clinton. A lot of people don't trust Hillary Clinton. In a normal political year, 
they would vote for the opposing candidate. But a lot of those people found Trump absolutely unacceptable for different reasons and at different times. Some got off the Trump train at, at the very beginning over over the birtherism. Some decided not to support him because he wanted to build a wall because of his hostility to uh, immigration. Some decided against him when it became clear that he doesn't pay income taxes. For some, the breaking point was the sexual assaults on women. The The third debate on uh, Wednesday night was his last chance to persuade people who don't like Hillary Clinton that they should vote for him. Do you think he made any progress at all on that Wednesday night? Did he accomplish anything in terms of moving voters to his side, voters who weren't already there? I can't imagine that he did. I mean, anecdotally, I've, I have seen uh, people who ran focus groups. Uh, there was one on MSNBC, a group of 22 undecided Ohio voters, and at the end, 11 said they were more likely to vote for Hillary, five did say they were more likely to vote for Trump. I can't. I would love to see in-depth interviews with them because I don't know what he could have done to make them say that. But uh, but at any rate, you know, I, I can't imagine that he he did enough to win people over, and I think he did he did enough to lose people who might have been wavering on the fence. I think he was kind of ridiculous. We're assuming here that all the polls are right, that Hillary will be elected and will take office on January 20th. Given the hostility and the bitterness on the Trump side, do you think that's going to be a lasting problem that will continue to undermine her legitimacy as president next year? I think that he will try to undermine her legitimacy as president for sure. And I think that he he's fired up a lot of his base. I don't know how many people it is, but it's in the millions, so that's scary, not to accept her legitimacy. Uh, that's dangerous. One thing, though, that might happen that I think could be helpful, you know, we, we suffered through birtherism, but we saw a lot, a lot of Republicans just refused to comment on it. John Boehner famously said, it's not my job to tell my members, even though he was the House Speaker, what to think. Um, one after another, Republicans refused to step up and denounce the, the growing uh, birtherism, racism, uh, xenophobia of the Tea Party. Uh, they tried to accommodate the Tea Party. Donald Trump is the end result of that. And Therefore, I think some of them now have seen the danger in accommodating crazy. So we might see, we've already seen it, you know, since he said this about not accepting the results, we might see more people stand up and say, this man is crazy. She is our president. We're going to try to work with her. Whether they do work with her, that's another story, but we can talk about that another time. Joan Walsh, reader at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Thanks, John. Now it's time for more Trump Talk with Kai Wright. He's features editor at The Nation, and he's host and producer of The United States of Anxiety, a terrific podcast co-produced by The Nation and WNYC. Kai Wright, welcome back. Thank you so much. 
A heads up for our listeners, in this segment, we quote Donald Trump, which means we use some strong language and discuss mature topics. If you have kids in the car, you might want to save this for later. Kai, after last week's horrible news about Trump's sexual assaults, I wondered what you were going to do with your podcast, which is dedicated to the proposition that we need to understand Trump supporters. I do understand some things about them. I know they don't care about his sexual assaults or his not paying income taxes or his racism, but that's not what you were driving at. What, what are you driving at? There is a, there's, there's a thing we do in this country where when we see something we don't like, we turn it into a monster. And, uh, and we say, that's this exceptional, monstrous thing that's happening over there in the corner. And if I just slay that monster, we can just go on with our life and everything will be fine. But everything is not fine. Everything has not been fine for a lot of people in America for a long time. And, uh, and a lot of what Trump represents and a lot of what he's talking about has been with us. And, uh, and it's been closer to a lot of us than we care to admit to ourselves. And, um, and, and I think that this, this refusal to look at it, this refusal to sit down and actually listen and try to think, well, where are these people coming from? I think it provides us with false comfort, politically and culturally. And so that's a lot of what's happening in this podcast is we're just trying to get rid of that false comfort. We, we have put our false comfort to the side and said, okay, where are these people coming from? And then this week, you know, after this, you know, there are times when that's harder to do than others. And I have to tell <laughs> yes. you, you know, for myself, it was a really, you know, when we heard this Billy Bush tape, you know, and not for nothing, Billy Bush is, uh, is committing as much violence in that tape as Donald Trump. Uh, when we heard this Billy Bush tape, uh, it really, it shocked me in a way that it, not shocked me because obviously I know this stuff goes on, but to witness it was really disturbing and to hear the folks we've been talking to make excuses for it was really hard to to digest and so what we aim to do in this most recent episode was really look at the alternative universe like how that got created such that inside their world this could be excusable the typical trump supporter featured on your podcast, The United States of Anxiety. We've, we've uh, talked about her and listened to her once before on this podcast. Uh, she's a mother and working woman on suburban Long Island named Patty. She's lively and friendly. She says she became a political activist a few years ago. She joined a movement called Overpasses for America. In most places, they held up signs on freeway overpasses saying, honk to impeach Obama, although Patty told you that was not what she did. She says she just held up a flag to celebrate patriotism. Your team talked to Patty after the revelations on that uh, Billy Bush Access Hollywood tape where Trump boasted, let's just remember what he said, quote, when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the pussy. You can do anything, close quote. Here's what Patty said, speaking with your reporter, Arun Venegopal. Did you see it? Did you watch it? Oh, yeah, I heard it. And what did you make of it? It was, I mean, it kind of caused this huge... I was like, oh, oh, damn. She found the tape unseemly, okay? But then... We know nobody's perfect. Nobody... Here we are, a year after all this is on, this is what they pull out now, right? This is what they pull out now. They, meaning the Clinton campaign... And she thinks this is rank hypocrisy, given how liberals reacted to the Clinton sex scandals. 
I didn't say I condone that. But listen, we say that. Now, all of a sudden, this is a hypocrisy of the left to the right. We went through this for years in the 90s. And I had little children coming to visit my sons that were maybe 8, 9, 10 years old. And they were hearing from the parents, it was only sex. It was only sex. Right? Now, we have this one little clip, uh, and, you know, two minutes of Donald Trump saying that, and they go ape, you know what. So Patty says she didn't condone that, but, and then she told you some more. I always knew 90% of the media were in Clinton's pocket. But now, of course, with the WikiLeaks and doing a lot of research on all that, it's, it's quite obvious. I mean, there's no denying it, but we won't see that in the media. We'll see very little of it in the media. We'll, um, I don't know, the American people, we the people, meaning all of us, deserve to be brought the truth, and we won't be. We will not be brought the truth. So, Kai, what do you think about Patty's argument here? Well, I was deeply disappointed in Patty, I have to say. I was really pulling. I was hoping that she was going to say, you know, that's just not acceptable, but that, that isn't what she said. Um, And I think you hear two things in there that are really important um, that we hear a lot. And and that's sort of the logic of the world that that has been created for them by the right-wing media that they are immersed in and have been immersed in. One is you really cannot understate the depth of distrust and anger at the Clintons, um, both Bill and Hillary. They genuinely believe that Bill Clinton is a serial rapist and that Hillary Clinton has committed murder, and that, uh, and that they have been pounding home that idea in right-wing media for 25 years plus. And if you believe that, there is nothing that Donald Trump would say or do that would be worse than the crimes of the Clintons. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that you hear her doing is that there's a very clear misdirection that happens uh, both when you're reading and listening to right-wing media and that you see Trump doing on, in, on, in the campaign and that she is doing there. And that's this misdirection to the media. Like, it's this, it's a very easy process where we move off of whatever it is we're talking about, whether it was something racist that someone has said on the right or, or something like this sexual assault tape, and move to the mainstream media and it's, and it's in the conspiracy uh, and, and we should say that there is a lot of troubling language about mainstream media and how much it is run by Jewish people. Um, and so the conspiracy that these mainstream media people have to ruin America and to undermine the right. And that, again, is something that has been hammered in day in and day out uh, in right wing media. And so once you've done that, once you've established that, then anything that comes out of it is a lie. So it's very so so it makes so then it starts to make not sense, but you can understand how Trump's response that well you know the Clintons are worse and the mainstream media is lying to you makes sense because you're like oh yeah that's what I've been hearing for 25 years. And one of the great things you do on this episode four of United States of Anxiety is you play some clips from right wing uh, talk radio. Uh, from not this year, but uh, but eight or ten years ago, especially from Rush Limbaugh. Here is uh, Rush Limbaugh from the first year of the Obama presidency. The days of them not having any power are over, and they are angry, and they want to use their power as a means of retribution 
That's what Obama's about, gang. He's angry. He's going to cut this country down to size. He's going to make it pay for all this multicultural uh, uh, mistakes that it has made. And of course, Hillary has inherited the angry black voters, and and now they're all going to commit voter fraud uh, <laughs> on uh, on November on November eighth. Have I got that right? You you do. I mean, it's you know um, I I struggle some you know between laughing and crying because it's you know it's absurd, right? You listen to this stuff, and it's like this is just absurd. But at the same time, it it does carry a logic when people have been immersed in it. For so long, you know, when you think about, you know, that that clip we just heard and how uh, and how Obama is gonna, you know, they're 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 gonna take, they're gonna they're gonna stoke the anger and they're gonna and they're gonna take back the country and they're gonna use they're they're resentful and all they have is race for this resentment and 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 the next part of that becomes, you know, that they're gonna cause race riots. That's something that they've been saying in the right-wing media since the beginning of the Obama administration. They're going to cause race riots. And then, all of a sudden, when we start having Black Lives Matter and we start having uh, these protests and, and, and you hear Rudy Giuliani and the like get up and say, see, I told you, there's race riots in the streets. And it sounds, when we hear that now, we're like, what? Where'd they get, how'd they get the race riots? What are they talking about? These are protests. Yeah. But, there, it's, but you have to put those today's comments in the context of the past eight years, where every single day they've been going on about the race riots that are coming. So, so there's a way in which this rhetoric that's in this bubble sort of, they create these self-fulfilling prophecies for themselves. And so when you have now Hillary Clinton, right, like, Public enemy number one in this world returning to the to to power. Uh, it is the culmination of all of their darkest fantasies that they've been describing for all of this time. And 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 you can you can again not necessarily that it makes sense, but you can see how people are then driven right over the edge if they've if they've bought into this this narrative that that has been presented to them. That, 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 that this is this is proof that the UFOs are in fact landing. And you have one final clip from Rush Limbaugh, which kind of sums up so much of the underlying worldview. No matter where you turn, you can't escape this fact. If you are conservative, Republican, straight and white, you are yesterday. You are so yesterday. You are so irrelevant. You are so unnecessary. Wow. So, Kai, where where does that leave us trying to understand Trump voters like Patty? In in this week's episode, we pick up on that very quote uh, and, and try to dig into it because what Rush Limbaugh is doing there is the same thing that Trump is doing in this campaign. And this is where I start to have some empathy is he is tapping into the sense of shame and emasculation and humiliation that a lot of white people of a certain class in America feel right now um, because of all the stuff that we've talked about in this election already, the, you know, the changing economics, that you know, going from being uh, someone who, from, from being part of a tradition of blue-collar workers that worked with your hands in a world in which, in a country in which we lionized that kind of work and, uh, and gave people dignity for it, to being somebody who's stocking shelves at Walmart, 
um, and um, and the and the if, if you're lucky, um, and the the emotions that go with that, the feeling of shame and loss, you know, alongside uh, a, a public narrative in which people of color are no longer prepared to sit quietly. Not that we were ever prepared to sit quietly, but where we're having real we're having a real national conversation that you cannot avoid about racial injustice and racial inequity and what people of color deserve in this country. Those, the, with this happening alongside these, feeling this shame about what you've lost, they're, they're tapping into that. They're saying, you know what, if you feel ashamed and you feel humiliated, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. Somebody else has done this to you and we're gonna make you feel good again. Uh, and, and so again, to, the reason why that make America great again line resonates for Trump is because they have been hearing in right-wing media for a very long time about how marginalized they have become as an identity group. And, and so that's what they're tapping into. And so, you know, in this week's episode, we try to look into that. Kai Wright, host and producer of the United States of Anxiety. Listen at thenation.com. Subscribe at iTunes. Kai, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John. We heard the news that Bob Dylan had won the Nobel Prize for Literature just after the news that all those women had come forward to testify they'd been sexually assaulted or groped by Donald Trump. It had been one of the most miserable and infuriating weeks in recent American political history. And then from Stockholm, out of the blue, we got this good news, something surprising and wonderful. My next-door neighbor said that for the first time in weeks, he felt pretty good about the world all day long. I told him, me too. For comment on that Nobel Prize, we turn to Greil Marcus. He's been writing about Bob Dylan for more than 40 years in places including Rolling Stone, The New York Times, Art Forum, Interview, Salon, City Pages, Three Penny Review, and The Village Voice. And all those pieces have been collected and published in the book Bob Dylan by Greil Marcus, Writings 1968 to 2010. It's 481 pages long. And he has a new piece about Bob Dylan getting the Nobel Prize at the New York Times online last week. We reached him this afternoon in Minneapolis, at one time the home of Bob Dylan. Creel Marcus, welcome. Nice to be with you, John. So Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for literature. Do we have to argue about whether what Dylan writes is literature? Do we have to say Homer sang his epics or that Virgil was a lyricist? Well, you know, I have no interest in, in those questions, and I've always thought the question of whether or not Bob Dylan was a poet was a waste of time and, you know, an utter bore to try and parse out. And I always thought that the campaign to win Bob Dylan the Nobel Prize, and God knows campaigning for Nobel Prizes is anything but unknown, people have been trying for years to promote Bob Dylan as someone who must win the Nobel Prize. And it always struck me as, you know, people wanting validation for their own admiration and obsession with Dylan. They wanted the Nobel Committee to certify them and their seriousness. I don't think it really had much to do with Bob Dylan at all, that campaign. And I always thought that was pretty ridiculous, you know, like he, he doesn't need it. On the other hand, 
when I heard about it early Thursday morning, I felt really good. Yes. I was very happy about it. Yeah. And I was happy for him, happy for Bob Dylan, and curious about what he might end up saying. He gave this extraordinary talk at the Music Cares Award ceremonies a year or so ago. 35, 40-minute talk, all written out ahead of time. Nothing random about it. Uh, a lot of score settling and a lot of, you know, pretty serious analysis of how and why he wrote his songs. Remarkable. Uh, I just hope he doesn't get up there and quote Faulkner, you know, we will endure. <laughs> you know, I'm with you on this. We don't need to have a Bob Dylan be a poet, but yet his words do have, uh, you know, a real uh, a mysterious power that is sort of like literature, I guess. Well, I mean, who knows what literature is? And, and really, who cares? Yeah. I don't care. I want to listen to some of the songs and talk about what he's done with them over the years. In the song Highway 61 Revisited from 1965, Bob sings those unforgettable lines. Abe says, where you want this killing done? God says, out on Highway 61. A friend told me last Thursday morning, uh, he deserves the Nobel Prize just for those lines. Let's listen. Oh, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no. Abe said, what? God said, you can do what you want, Abe, but uh, next time you see me coming, you better run. Well, Abe said, where do you want this killing done? God said, all down Highway 61. So, Greel, you've heard him sing this song many times. What was the most recent one? Uh, I listened to his version of that song and when he played it a desert trip a week or so ago. You know, the, the big gathering in California of the Rolling Stones and the Who and Bob Dylan and Paul McCartney and um, let's see who else. Elvis was definitely there. Uh, <laughs> little Richard Frank Sinatra made an appearance. Um, so, so, and um, Al Jolson. Al Jolson really stole the show. There's no question about so that. So what was, that, what was uh, it like hearing Bob sing Highway 61 revisited a couple of weeks ago out in Coachella? Well, you know, I always miss the police whistle, yeah. the police siren, which Bob Dylan plays. And if you, if you listen to that song, you, you realize that the most rhythmic thing uh, on the recording is, is the police siren. It's just, it swings. It's mm -hmm. just uncanny. It's not just, you know, screech, screech, screech. It's got a lift to it. It's got a, almost a melody to it. And what's so brilliant about that song is probably the best written song Bob Dylan ever wrote. And it seemed like that in 1965, and it seems like that today is just the way that the, the language begins to break down in that first voice. Abe say what? Just so fast. It's all moving so fast. You know, the first time I ever drove onto Highway 61, which was here in the Twin Cities, uh, I really expected to have some kind of mystical vision that the, the uh, <laughs> highway had taken on such a, a charged sense 
from that song that it just didn't seem like a real place. It didn't seem like it, it could ever be ordinary in, in, in any way. So I also want to listen to Masters of War. Dylan has been performing, uh, I would say, intermittently over, over several decades. We first heard it in 1963. Let's listen to the opening uh, verse, and then we'll talk about it. I'm your Masters of War. Here that build the big guns Here that build the death planes Here that build all the bombs Here that hide behind walls Here that hide behind discs I just don't want you to know I can see through your masks You that never done so in 1963, this was really stunning. Today, it's, you know, it's very, it's, I guess we call it early Dylan, much more literal than what he was doing just two years later. You must have heard Bob Dylan sing Masters of War live dozens of times. Well, here, here's the thing about that song. He started playing it, he wrote it, started playing it in 1963. He closed his set at Desert Trip with that song. So that's that's one hell of an arc. Yeah. And, you know, you can say, well, you know, this, the world still has lots of wars. The song is still current. And the song is very specific. It's about what Franklin Roosevelt used to call war profiteers, mm-hmm. people who make money off wars, people who are invested in wars. It's not an anti-war song as such. But it comes across that way, and it comes across with a tremendous sense of weight, permanence, regret, despair, and defiance. Part of that is because its melody comes from a very ancient British folk song called Nottingham Town. Nobody knows how far back it goes, how, how old that melody is. That melody is part of what has kept that song alive because it just carries so much weight. Uh, Its roots are so deep. You can feel all that. That comes across. It doesn't have to be discussed or anything. It's just uh, the body of the song. On the other hand, in 1991, uh, when the first Gulf War was just about to start, and uh, Dylan appears to accept the Lifetime Achievement Award at at the Grammy ceremonies, and he comes on with his band, which at the time might have been the hottest band he's ever played with. And he launches into a song very fast, very, very noisy with just, you know, streaks of electricity all over it. It's just hammering. And it's also completely incomprehensible. You know, he is purposely soaring one word into the other word. You can't make out the words. And it wasn't until, I think, somewhere around the third voice that the melody crept back into the performance. And I said, oh, my God, this is Masters of War. And, you know, then I could sort of begin to pick out a word here or there. But it was an astonishing performance, one of the, one of the greatest of his career, to play Masters of War with more ferocity than he had ever played it, just as a war was 
beginning and yet at the same time disguise it so that the performance would go off like a bomb, you know, maybe minutes, maybe months, maybe years after, after it was first uh, lit. So this is a song that is alive for Bob Dylan. Uh, I've heard him do it in so many different ways. And I wrote a, a long piece once called Stories of a Bad Song about Masters of War, ah. because in some ways it's just incredibly heavy-handed and yeah. self-righteous and, and self-affirming in a, in, a, in a kind of cheap way. And yet, given what he and other people have done with this song, it may be the song that outlasts him the longest. Who knows? Well, we can't conclude our discussion of Bob Dylan's Nobel Prize without listening to Like a Rolling Stone. Once upon a time you dressed so fine Threw the bumps of dime in your prime Then you Call, say beware, doll, you're bound to fall. You thought they were all kidding you. You used to laugh about everybody that was hanging out. Now you don't talk so loud. Now you don't seem so proud. Such a magnificent song, Greel Marcus. Let's talk about Like a Rolling Stone. Well, you know, I, I can't listen to that song um, w without feeling as if I'm hearing it for the first time. Every, every note in that song, every word, every inflection is a breakthrough. There, there is an energy that has come to bear all the people in that room, all the people playing that song at that moment, the song is taking them past themselves, taking them somewhere where they have never been. They've never played, they've never sung with that kind of synchronicity. Every person playing off every other, and every person stepping into a realm where he's never been before in terms of passion, expressiveness, formal intensity, uh, taking a form and pushing it to its absolute limit and pushing yourself past those limits. Um, that's what you hear over, over six minutes. And, you know, every time I hear it on the radio in, in a context of discussion, I just, I just think they're gonna, they're not going to play the whole thing, <laughs> um, which of course you didn't, and uh, you know I can understand that. But 
you know, hearing it today, hearing just that first verse and the first chorus, you realize that that is a great song all by itself. They could, they could have stopped right there, and it would have been something singular. It wouldn't have been what it became. You know, uh, let's put it this way. A song like that, a work of art like that, comes to no one, no artist, more than once. But it doesn't necessarily come in anyone's lifetime. We're, we're lucky we're alive when that song can be played. We're lucky to be alive when Bob Dylan sang Like a Rolling Stone. Creel Marcus, he wrote about Bob Dylan getting the Nobel Prize for the New York Times. He also wrote the book Bob Dylan by Greel Marcus, Writings, 1968 to 2010. Greel, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. It's always a pleasure, and nothing could be more fun than to talk about this. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.